So some of you are looking for a church home today, you're kind of church shopping, and on one Sunday a month, we offer our Discover class for folks who are looking for a church family, and that's typically the second Sunday, but that was Mother's Day, and so we're doing that today. That class will be immediately following the service. You go out these doors, you'll see signage pointing this way to room W2. About a 30-minute presentation on what we believe about the Bible, what we understand the Bible teaches about salvation, how the church is organized, what membership is. So we would love for this to be your church family, and that class is for you today, and we certainly encourage you to attend if you can. Now today I'm starting a new sermon series entitled Rhythm. And you know the saying, two steps forward, one step back. We're going we're gonna to do a little of that today. I'm going to say three things about this whole rhythm series to sort of set the table, to set it up a little bit. But in order to do that, I do have to take a step back because the impetus for this particular sermon series was out of the last sermon series called Resurrection. I was preaching two weeks ago on the spiritual resurrection, on when we're baptized, and that's when God regenerates our hearts and resurrects our spirit to a new life. And we were sort of asking the question, if we have the Holy Spirit and we're supposed to be living this new life with our regenerated hearts, how come it's still hard to live a holy life? And so that's where this came from, and I'm, I'm going to ask and answer three questions this morning, starting with this one, why rhythm? Why rhythm? Now, in that sermon, I juxtaposed two passages from Paul's writings in Romans, Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. We'll put those up on the screen here side by side. In Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, I don't really understand myself or what I want to do. I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Right? Romans 7. Now in Romans 8, he says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And I suggested that these these two passages are sort of like two paradigms in which we experience our lives. I mean, we've all been in Romans chapter 7, undoubtedly. Even though we're Christians, we know what it means to, hey, I'm not doing what I want to do, and the things I don't want to do, that's, that's what I wind up doing. We know what that feels like to not be able to string together a winning series over temptation and sin. And we probably also know what it means to live in Romans chapter 8. Here, where we are being led by the Spirit, we feel like we're in sync with the Holy Spirit. We're giving the devil a smackdown, and we're just being victorious over sin. And so I suggested, you know, these are two paradigms, and what we're striving for in our sanctification, which is the progressive process of becoming holy, becoming like Christ, what we're striving for is to have less seven and more eight. Less of Romans seven in our lives, more of Romans eight. I even said that might make a good t-shirt. So I got Andre to make me the t-shirt. That's why I've got less seven, more eight. So in other words, nobody's without sin. We understand that. No, you can't say that. The uh, Bible's clear. But we want sin to be the embarrassing exception in our lives, not the humiliating rule of our lives. Less seven and more eight. And I read from... Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I like that. I like that phrase, the unforced rhythms of grace. I like applying this to the Holy Spirit. I like it a little bit better than plugging into His power because the Holy Spirit is not a battery or an outlet. He is a person. And when you say rhythm, you kind of you can picture, and we did picture, two partners who are dancing together and staying in sync or staying in rhythm. So the Holy Spirit's a person with a personality, and that's what we're striving for. Now, me, I don't have a lot of natural rhythm. I can't even clap in time to the songs we sing from the praise team in here. If there's somebody throwing off the clapping out there, it's me. <laughs> and maybe you struggle with that too, maybe not. But I can learn the rhythms of God's grace and the rhythms of the Holy Spirit, and all of us can. So that's where we're going. And so that's the question number one, why rhythm? Question number two is, what does that look like? What does that look like? If we are in rhythm with the Holy Spirit, If we are living a life that, as Paul phrases it, is being led by the Holy Spirit, what does that look like? When we've, quote-unquote, arrived, I hesitate to say that because you never quite arrive, so it's a process, but when we've arrived, what does that life look like? I'm going to cast a vision for that. I don't want to oversimplify things. We never want to be guilty of reductionism, which is oversimplification, but I want to make a suggestion under two headings what it means to live a life led by the Holy Spirit, what it means to be in rhythm or in sync and lean into the Holy Spirit. Number one, I would put it under the heading of living an abundant life, living a fulfilling and abundant life. Now, Paul writes in Romans 8, 6, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. I believe that echoes a little bit what Jesus said in John 10, 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, a full life or an abundant life, a life that's characterized by by peace, a life that might be characterized by the fruit of the Holy Spirit over there in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, a life of love, a life of joy, a life of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and the rest. We've been having some really nice weather this past week in Florida, and last week, I think it was on Wednesday, Katie, my daughter, she was over at the house. We had the three youngest grandchildren over there. It was around lunchtime, so we're sitting in our backyard. In our backyard, we got these two big oak trees, lots of shade back there, and she and I are sitting on the swing, and we're watching the three youngest grandchildren as they play. They're going down the slides. They're swinging on their swings. They're having a good time. The breeze is blowing. It's nice and cool. And I just was thinking to myself, Life is beautiful. This is a beautiful moment. So peaceful, joyful, loving, tranquil. I wish that it could go on forever. Of course, it never does. It's always a window because one of those kids is going to get an owie or they're going to start arguing over a toy. But just one of those snatches of a glimpse of what heaven might be like. You've experienced that with your own grandchildren or your own children or maybe in some other setting, maybe hiking up to the top of a mountain and seeing a beautiful vista. Maybe if you're a snorkeler or a scuba diver, getting under there at at the reef and seeing the beautiful fish and how peaceful and calm it is under the water. Maybe going out with lifelong friends and having a meal, coming back and just fellowshipping together. Maybe having a wonderful evening with your spouse. Just a snatch of heaven and thinking, wow, 
Life right now is beautiful. And I'm thinking when we're, when we're looking at that spirit-led life, it's like that, only internalized. Internalized. Because you know, those analogies are somewhat dependent on external circumstances, the external circumstances that I describe or that we experience. But the abundant life is an internal life. It's about our interior life. You know, I mentioned scuba diving and, and skin diving. It's, if you've been out there on the water and, the, and maybe the ocean or a lake and the wind starts kicking up and you're getting some white caps and it's rough, but you submerge then it's, it's still peaceful and quiet under the surface. When we're talking about a spirit-led life and the abundant life that Jesus promises, it has to be the interior life, not the exterior, independent of the exterior circumstances. And Paul, Paul seems to go out of his way to make that point in Romans chapter 8, for instance, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, these kinds of things, most of us have never experienced persecution or famine or nakedness or the danger of sword. But the people to whom Paul was writing originally sure had. They sure had. And there are other Christians in the world who are experiencing that. But my point is, he says, even though you're experiencing this in your external circumstances, you're still a, more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. So we're looking at a distinct definition of conquering and victory. It's something external. When do we receive the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit? At baptism, Acts 2.38. The Bible's pretty clear about that. But you know, when someone is, is baptized and receives the Holy Spirit, let's say that they're they're in an unhappy marriage when they're baptized, when they come up still in an unhappy marriage. Let's say they're divorced when they're baptized. They come up, they're still divorced. Let's say that they're poor when they're baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, they come up and they're still poor. Let's say they've got some disease or, or injury or sickness when they're baptized, they come up, they're still sick, still injured. Let's say they're a slave, like much of the church were slaves in the first century. When they're baptized, they come up, they're still slaves. Those externals don't change or they may change eventually, but they don't change. But internally, Paul says, if, if, when you're saved, if you were a slave, now you're Christ's free man. If they're sick when they're baptized, now their spirit is healed from sin sickness. If they were poor when they were baptized, the Bible says now they are rich in Christ. Divorced, widowed, single, baptized, come up married to Christ. In the spiritual realm, everything changes. And the abundant life is accessible to every Christian right away, no matter what the external circumstances. See, whatever this is, it has to be true not only for those of us pursuing, maybe achieving the American dream, it has to be true of the Ukrainian refugees as well who are fleeing their homes. It is an interior, abundant, joyful, loving, full, tranquil, satisfied life. So I said, 
What do I think it is? I'm saying two things. I think it's the abundant life. The second thing I believe it is, this, this being in rhythm with the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit, not just the abundant life, but the holy life, a holy life. Paul continues, Romans, it's just two or three verses here. from Again, Romans 8, Romans 8, 2. Through Christ, Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death, 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, those, those are sins, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And Romans 8, 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. That verse right there, as I understand it, is the general description of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the Christian today. In general, He helps us in our weakness. And our primary weakness is moral. It is a moral weakness. It is that inability of our own sheer willpower to be obedient to God and to follow His will and obey His commands. It's Romans chapter 7, the things I don't want to do, that's what I wind up doing. The things that I, I want to do, I can't seem to do those. It's that. The Holy Spirit gives us an inner resource of moral power to live a holy life in obedience to God. To live with a clear conscience before God. A clear conscience is possible for a Christian because of two things. First and primarily, because the blood of Jesus has washed away our sin. But secondly, a clear conscience comes from knowing that I am not willfully disobeying the will of God. Do you realize how central a clear conscience is to the teaching of Scripture? I want to read you a number of passages, just 10 passages, really. We'll go through quick. Don't expect you to remember any of them. I just want these to leave an impression of the importance of a clear conscience. Most of these are Paul, not all. Acts 23.1, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience. 24.16, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. My conscience is clear. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves with integrity and godly sincerity. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience, holding on to faith and a good conscience. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. We're sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way, keeping a clear conscience pretty important. As we cast a vision and try to get a picture of what this looks like to be in rhythm or in sync and harmony, to be led by the Holy Spirit, we want to see ourselves living a life that is characterized by love and joy and peace and patience, tranquility, and we want to see ourselves living with a good conscience, knowing that if I died today, if Christ came back today, I don't have any unfinished business. Not in the sense I've got a, a bucket list that I haven't checked off yet, but in the sense that, well, there's, there's no skeleton, there's no secret that I'm hiding, there's no dark corner 
no hurt, habit, or hang up that I have not turned over and surrendered and with the Lord helping me and living in victory. As we go through this series, I'm not going to be talking about how to speak in tongues. I'm not going to be talking about how to prophesy. I'm not going to be talking about working of miracles. I think that was the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the apostles and those upon whom they laid their hands. We're not charismatic. We're not Pentecostal. I'm going to be talking about how to be led by the Holy Spirit so we have moral power to live before God with a clear conscience, which is part of what leads to that love, joy, peace, and tranquility. Okay, so that's where we're going. I say we don't necessarily arrive because it's a process. Where it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. Like in those in recovery, understand this. You're always in recovery because it's a lifestyle. Well, it's the same thing here. Right? Same thing here. Okay, so that being the case, how many will dance? That's the third question. How many will dance? Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for everything, a time to dance. And Jesus said in Matthew 11, we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. If that's the case, if every Christian has access to this wonderful life and this clear conscience, why doesn't everyone do it? Now make no mistake, everyone does not do it. Now, I'm not sure it's a salvation issue. I'm not sure about that. It could be that you know, we are struggling, we spend our whole lives struggling, living in chapter 7, not having any victory, not having any peace, and all of that, and still be forgiven and go to heaven. I, I, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, this is available. Why doesn't everyone do it? Because, number one, it's hard. Number two, it takes a little time. It takes a little time to get in rhythm. And because of that, it's going to involve change. And change is always hard. I have no doubt. A lot of us are already doing the things I'm going to be talking about. No doubt about that. But not everybody. For instance, I just read a study that said 32% of Christians read their Bible every day. Well, if I'm in the 68% that doesn't, I'm going to be challenged about that in this upcoming series. In the series, each week, we're going to look at a different rhythm of the Holy Spirit. And that's going to require change, and change is always hard. Here's a medical study. An estimated 600,000 people undergo heart bypass surgery annually in America. After having life-saving surgery, these patients understand that they must change the way they live if they hope to continue living because the bypass surgery is only a temporary fix. The recovering patients must change the way they eat, quit smoking and drinking, add exercise to their daily routine. Their surgeons tell them they need to change the way they live or they will die. Surgery alone cannot save them. The study revealed that two years after having life-saving surgery, nine out of ten patients have not changed the way they live. Instead of changing, they choose to die. That's how hard it is to change. That's why I wanted to start with a vision. Hopefully a vision that's compelling enough that we'll want to make some changes if we need to. What I'm talking about is rhythms of the Holy Spirit have classically been known as disciplines, spiritual disciplines. For instance, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.7, train yourself for godliness. That word train, the original language is gymnazo. Recognize 
We get our word gymnasium from that. It's a word that has the smell of sweat about it. And Paul is, is literally saying to Timothy, I want you to get out and have a good, hard, sweaty workout for godliness. It, it takes work and effort, energy, and time. And some people are going to wonder, time? I don't know where I'm going to get this time. You're asking me to add Bible reading or maybe prayer or a couple other things I'm not going to go into yet until we get there. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the time. Well, time really is never the issue. You know, if I came in and did a time audit over you, this followed you throughout your day, I could find the time. And you could probably do the same for me. And I will say this, this is, this is a generality, so take it for that. But for a lot of us, you know where the time is going to come from? It's going to come from our entertainment budget. I don't mean the amount of money that we budget for time, I'm, or for entertainment. I mean the amount of time. We are an entertainment-driven culture. You know that. I grew up with that. One of the hardest things for me to do, I continue to struggle with it, is wean myself off escaping and medicating through entertainment in order to get in rhythm with God and the Spirit. Kent Hughes has written a, a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. This is a classic book on spiritual discipline. Disciplines of a Godly Man. Listen to what he says. Here's a quote. This is a hard teaching. A face lit by a luminous screen is a study in passivity. Fleeting images intermingled with thousands of commercials and banner ads of an average week's viewing instill passiveness. There's no time for engagement or reflection, much less action. The viewer becomes a passive, munching, sipping drone. There are guys who have substituted viewing for doing and imagine they've scored a touchdown or taken a hill by virtue of having watched it. I warn people about using absolutes like always, never, or all, but I say this. No man who spends his evenings in front of the tube or a luminous screen in the cyber world night after night after night can be a godly man. This is always true in every case, and there are no exceptions. I told you it was hard. Now, I consume entertainment too. We swim in that water. But Paul said, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Well, I'm going to read you one final quote and then, and then wrap it up here. William Irvine writes in his book, A Guide to the Good Life, there is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you'll look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. In John chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And John added an editorial comment. John said, this Jesus said about the Holy Spirit who was later to be given 
to those who obeyed Jesus. Is that the way we feel about our lives? Do we feel like there's a river of living water flowing within me? An inner artesian well of life and joy and peace and happiness and tranquility. A holy life. That's where we want to go. Jesus is playing the tune. Who's going to dance? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to dance. And even if we don't, we want to want to. We pray, God, a thanks to you for giving us the Holy Spirit. We know you promised to give him to us when we're baptized. We know that he indwells us, but sometimes we grieve him, and sometimes we've quenched him, and sometimes we've just plain ignored him and have not done those things that you have shown us to do, which will allow us to get in rhythm and in sync and in harmony with the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can live in Romans chapter 8, not 7, and walk in the power of your Spirit. We want to do that. Please show us how and help us. May your Spirit help us in our weakness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.